Can you believe how incredible the God we get to worship is? I, I, I love that song, you know. And in the night when all our hope is lost, you are the one who won't give up on us. Don't you love it, man? How bad it is, how dark it may seem. We serve a God. He, he never once has or ever will give up on us. What an awesome, amazing, incredible God. We get to worship, we get to serve, we get to praise. Man, wow, wow. Hey, so how is uh, losing that hour of sleep working for everyone this morning? (laughs) You feeling awake? Are you feeling bright-eyed and bushy-tailed? And here's the definition, excited and attentive. To be wide awake, not tired, that's what it means to be bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. In case you wanted to know, bright-eyed and bushy-tailed comes direct and intact from the classic fox hunt. A fox with dull or cloudy eyes or a limp, listless, ungroomed tail is one in poor health and will not provide a good active challenge over a long chase. Here's a picture of a fox that's bright-eyed and bushy-tailed. See that sucker man? (laughs) Woo! That's you guys, right? I don't care if I lost sleep. I am ready to go. All right? I got to tell you, I really love it when we fall back each year in October. You know, but springing forward and losing that hour of sleep, not so much. Yeah, I'm I'm not really feeling quite like that fox. Maybe you feel like me today. I feel like this fox a little bit more. (laughs) Uh, Isn't he cute? But hey, it could be worse. We could have lost two hours, right? Uh, Question, uh, when I say the word judge... Uh, what words, thoughts, or images come into your mind? When I say the word judge, what words, thoughts, or images? And if you would, go ahead and share your answer with the person next to you, all right? Share your answer. What, what thoughts, words, and images come into your mind when you think of the word judge? And if you're by yourself, talk to yourself. You do it at home, it's all right. Now, I think of words like power, authority, punishment, pronouncing a sentence, sending somebody to jail. I think of black robes and a banging gavel. And here are some of the images that come into my mind. Images like this. Anybody know who that is? Okay, who is it? Judge Wapner. You know, when I first started watching that show, you know, Doug Llewellyn, like his little sidekick, and they would say, okay, he'd have his microphone. And as the litigants make their way out of the courtroom, and and like the next week, as a litigant, and I'm going like, wait a second, is everybody named litigants here? <laughs> I really thought that. All right, here's your sign. All right, and, and anybody know who, who this judge is? <laughs> judge Judy. Reminds me a lot of my mom, okay? Uh, 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 she works 52 days a year and makes $45 million a year. Pretty good money. How about this judge here? <laughs> judge Mathis. Poor guy, he makes $5 million. All right, let's take up an offering for him. Um, <laughs> how about these nine people in black robes? Anybody know who they are? They're a current Supreme Court. They make 223000 a year. I don't know if what Judge Judy and all makes says something about our country. And, of course, who could forget this famous judge? <laughs> judge Dredd, right? Okay. And, and this is Sly. That's the Sly one right there. He should have stuck to Rambo and Rocky, I think. Uh, not a very good movie. If, anybody know what year it came out in? Just make you feel old. 1995, 18 years ago. Whoa. Okay. Again, again, when I think of a judge, I think of someone in the position of authority who has the power to punish. They're wearing a robe and they're wielding a gavel. And for the most part, a judge is not a guy that I really want to be standing in front of. Not anytime soon. I did that one time. I don't have time for the story. Okay, it didn't work so well. Okay, um, now you're curious. I'll tell you later. Okay. Again, and when I think of judge, I get the same feeling I get when I see those blue lights flashing behind me. Whenever my wife, Laurie, is pulled over for speeding. <laughs> uh, just kidding, just kidding. Usually she doesn't pull over. She usually just tries to outrun them, you know. No. <laughs> No, again, again, you know, use your family for jokes is never a good thing. <laughs> Hopefully she'll forget it as we move on. 
But this morning, we continue our journey in the story. It's, you know, for 31 weeks, we're taking a 30,000-foot view of the entire Bible from, from Genesis to Revelation. We began in January. We're going to end in September. And this book is our guide. It's 31 chapters. Uh, it's got chunks of Scripture arranging, arranged in chronological order in order to tell us the big story of the Bible. And, and here's, the, well, here's what's happening already, what will happen. You know, a lot of us are going to have a greater understanding and a greater appreciation of the entire story of the Bible like never before, and that understanding is going to help us become the people that God wants us to be, because the Word is powerful, and it's going to help us live the life that we always dreamed of living. And today we're in chapter 8 of the story, A Few Good Men and Women, a conversation that I'm calling Breaking the Cycle. Now chapter 8 of the story is about the period in history of God's people known as the judges. And listen, the judges that we're going to encounter in this chapter are not like the black robe wearing gavel-waving guys we mentioned earlier. No, no, their job description and their attire is a little different. Uh, Though they still had power and authority, their primary role was to tell the nation the truth. It was to call out right and wrong and to lead God's people into battle and out of trouble. You see, these judges, these judges don't... Okay, that's funny. Sorry. They had something different on these screens here. I'm going like, really? What's that? <laughs> it's like not playing back there. And anyhow, the primary goal of the judges <laughs> is to tell the truth, to call out right and wrong, to lead God's people out of trouble. You see, these judges didn't come to put people into captivity, but to release them from captivity. They didn't come to pronounce a sentence. They came to declare God's deliverance was coming, and their attire was battle armor, and they didn't wield a gavel. They wield weapons and other swords. The book of Judges covers a period of 330 years. And during that time, God called, he raised up, he commissioned and empowered 12 people to judge and lead his people. 11 guys and one lady, a really awesome lady named Deborah, who was not just a judge, she was also a prophet, and she's totally awesome. Now, the period of Judges, it takes place right after the book of Joshua. And listen, as the book of Joshua ends, as the period of conquest ends, Things are looking pretty good for God's people. It looks as if they have everything they need to become the people that God intended for them to be. I understand God has most definitely stacked the deck in their favor. He has placed an oversized ball on the tee. He's given them an oversized bat. And he says, go ahead and swing away. And the first few swings don't count unless you really kill it. I mean, just... Think of a a few of the things that they have going their way as the book of Judges begins. Finally, after 700 years, and you thought God was slow in answering your prayers, from the time the promise was made to Abraham in Genesis 12, they are finally in their own land. Uh, The promised land, a land that was flowing with milk and honey. Joshua, we saw last week, he led his people in a great military conquest. And after conquering the land, he sent his people out to take possession of the land. And the land was divided amongst the 12 tribes of Israel. And and you can see there's a map of that, how the land was divided up. So God's stacking the deck. He keeps stacking the deck. Not only are they in their own land, but, but God's presence dwells with them. To guide and direct them. His presence dwells with them to go before them in battle. Not only that, they, they have the sacrificial system in place whereby forgiveness is, is available. They can approach God. Uh, they have God's law, which instructs them how to love, you know, how to love God and how to love each other. And, and God's promise still stands. Uh, Moses said these words in Deuteronomy 30. See, I, I, I set before you today life and prosperity, death and destruction. For I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in obedience to him, to keep his commandments, decrees and laws. Then you will live and increase, and the Lord your God will bless you in the land you are going to possess. God says, you know what? If you follow me, my promise is I'm going to bless you. You're going to increase, and things are going to be great in the land you are possessing. And finally, God's people had made a powerful public commitment. Right after Joshua gave that great speech, we looked at last week in Joshua 24, where he tells them, hey, you know what? Um, you need to fear God, and you need to throw away all these idols you still have. And you, but, but if serving God 
is undesirable to you, if you think these other gods that you're worshiping have a better deal for you, then choose for yourself this day who you're going to serve. And Joshua said what? But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And here's how the people responded in Joshua 24, verse 16. Here's what they said. Far be it for us to forsake the Lord, to serve other gods. It was the Lord, our God himself, who brought us and our parents up out of Egypt from the land of slavery and performed those great signs before our eyes. He protected us on our entire journey and among all the nations through which we traveled. And the Lord drove out before us all the nations, including the Amorites who lived in the land. We too will serve the Lord because he is our God. All the people, hundreds of thousands said, we too will serve the Lord because he is our God. Yeah, like I said, it looks like God's people are on a roll. I mean, the mo, the momentum is definitely on their side of the field, and they literally have everything they need to be successful in this new land. However, if you read chapter 8 of the story this week, and by the way, who did their homework? Hands up. All right. All right. Good. Keep reading. Keep reading. It makes a difference. It's a good story. You know that this chapter, that this period of history turns out to be an extremely dark and sad time for God's people. A, a time marked more by defeat than by, by victory. It's not a good time. It's kind of a mess. Now, as chapter 8 of the story indicates in the title, there's still a few good men and a few good women during that three and three year history. Nevertheless, the bulk of those years are Dominated by violence, sexual morality, idolatry, pride, fear, sin, and evil. Uh, chapter 8 of the story opens up with these words. It's page 102 if you have your story with you. It'll, it'll pop up on the screen as well. Okay. And, and really this is kind of like a, a, a brief summary of where they're at and then a preview of the entire book of Judges. Uh, the people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua. And the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done. Joshua, son of Nun, the servant of the Lord, died at the age of 110. And they buried him in the land of his inheritance at Timnath-Heres in the hill country of Ephraim, north of Mount Gaish. After that whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Then Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. Uh, they forsook the Lord, the God of their ancestors, who brought them up out of Egypt, they followed and worshiped various gods of the people around them. They aroused the Lord's anger because they forsook him and served the Baals and the Ashtoreths. In his anger against Israel, the Lord gave them into the hands of raiders who plundered them. He sold them into the hands of their enemies all around, whom they were no longer able to resist. Whenever Israel went out to fight, the hand of the Lord was against them to defeat them, just as he had sworn to them. They were in great distress. Then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of these raiders. Yet, they would not listen to their judges, but prostituted themselves to other gods and worshipped them. They quickly turned away from the ways of their ancestors, who had been obedient to the Lord's commands. Whenever the Lord raised up a judge for them, he was the judge and saved them out of the hands of the enemies. As long as that judge lived, for the Lord relented because of their groanings under those who oppressed and afflicted them. But when that judge died... The people returned to ways even more corrupt than those that were ancestors, following other gods and serving and worshiping them. They refused to give up their evil practices and stubborn ways. Therefore, the Lord was very angry with Israel and said, Because this nation has violated the covenant I ordained for their ancestors and has not listened to me, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations Joshua left when he died. I will use them to test Israel and see whether they will keep the way of the Lord and walk in it as his ancestors did. And like I said, it's not, it's not, a, very, it's not a very pretty picture. And did, did you notice the, the cycle, the cycle of, of sin that they seem to be caught in for the entire period of Judges? It, it, it kind of looks like this. You know, again, Joshua dies and everybody's serving the Lord. Things are going great. And then Israel falls into what? They fall into sin and idolatry. Yeah. The number one sin in the book of Judges is the is sin of idolatry. It, it, it was the sin that was the root of all other sins. You see, 
Idolatry is not just an issue for God's people. Uh, Idolatry is the issue for God's people. It's the main issue. In fact, idolatry is the sin of God's people throughout the entire Old Testament. I think I mentioned last week that in my Bible reading, I'm reading the book of Ezekiel. I'm like up to chapter 23. Oh my goodness. This is like 600 years after the period of Judges. And if you think Judges is bad, man, the idols are like everywhere, every page, absolutely everywhere. See, idolatry is the sin from which all other sins are born, take root, and flow. It's the sin of breaking the very first commandment. The very first commandment is what? You shall have no other gods before me. You know, we get this one right, it's game on. We get this one wrong, it's game what? It's game over. It's game over. Kyle Eidelman, in that uh, book I'm reading now, which I encourage everybody to read, you know, it'll be a tough read, a scary read, a convicting read, challenging read. It's called God's at War. He, He says this. God wasn't saying before me as in ahead of me. A better understanding of the Hebrew word translated before me is in my presence. You shall have no other gods in my presence. Okay, like God is kind of like all present. That means any time I have something before before God in my life, it's right there in God's presence. God declines to sit atop an organizational flowchart. He is the organization. He's not interested in being president of the board. He is the board. And life does not work until everyone else sitting around the table in the boardroom of your heart is what? Is fired. He is God, and there are no other applicants for that position. There are no partial gods, no honorary gods, no assistant to the regional gods. God is saying this not because he is insecure, but, but because it's the way of truth in the universe, which is his creation. Only one God owns it and operates it. Only one God designed it. And only one God knows how it works. He's the only God who can help us, direct us, satisfy us, and save us. See, the only relationship, you know, I want to be in a relationship with God. Do you? Okay. The only relationship that God is interested in having with you and you and you and me is one that is exclusive, exclusive, and completely committed exclusive and completely committed. God is not interested in having an open relationship with me or an open relationship with you. He will not even consider sharing space on the love seat of your heart with anyone else. And the bottom line is this, until all these inferior gods and anything we put before God is inferior compared to our God, this is who you are, God. Until those inferior gods are dethroned, and God has his rightful place in our heart, we will never really have victory in our lives. They're caught in this cycle where they serve God and they fall into idolatry and they begin to be oppressed by their enemies. And then they do what we do. They cry out to God because of their suffering and enslavement. And listen, sometimes just like with us, they're crying out to God is more for relief uh, than an expression of genuine repentance and turning back to God. So again, looking at the cycle, do we got that picture again? You know, they serve the Lord, fall in idolatry, life gets tough, cry out to God, and God does what? God raises up a judge, actually 12 of them, one awesome lady, and God delivers them. They get their freedom. They have rest and peace. They serve God for a while, and then God's people go over and they hit the replay button one time, two times, three times, four times, 12 times in this 330-year period. The cycle, they're just caught in it. Now, as we've seen in each chapter of the story, there is so much more that we could talk about than we have time to talk about. Each week. Chapter 8 is no exception. I mean, my head is exploding. I mean, there's so many wild and exciting things that I wish we had time to talk about. Like a guy named Shamgar. It says that Shamgar had an ox goad and he killed 600 enemy soldiers with an ox goad, with a stick. And really, that's, that's the only verse about him. But what more do you need to know? 
I mean, when a dude can kill 600 enemy soldiers armed and he just has an ox code, that says enough. I mean, I don't have time to talk about a left-handed judge who sneaks into the chambers of the enemy king, who happened to be very fat, buries a sword in his belly, and escapes through the toilet system in the king's chambers. Can't talk about that. Don't have time. Or to talk about that awesome lady we meet uh, uh, that Deborah sings a song about named J.L. When the, when the enemy general comes into her tent, she says, hey, why don't you lie down? You look tired. Here's some milk. Just rest. And she goes over, grabs a tent peg and a hammer. Pow. Threw a skull into the ground. We don't have time to talk about that. So many great stories in the book of Judges. Make a great movie. But, but here's the bottom line. The chapter of the story, it, it, it's really important. The book of Judges, though it's probably not the most read book in the Bible, it's extremely important. I mean, Romans 15, 4, Paul says that everything that was written in the past, including Judges, was written to what? To teach us. And and Paul talked about how all Scripture is God-breathed and is useful to teach us what is true, to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, teaches us to do what is right. And understand, God inspired, God breathed these words 3,000 years ago for a reason. And I want to talk about two of those reasons in our time remaining. One reason we have this book of Judges, one reason chapter 8 of the story is in there is because it deals with some timeless and extremely relevant issues. And number two, because it, it reveals some pretty cool and awesome stuff about God. And we're going to go ahead and pray. And, and a lot of times we pray palms open. And that's a symbolic gesture to say we're open to what God has to say. And listen, if ever we need it to pray palms open, it's now. Because maybe some of us are stuck in a cycle, right? Life is good. Forget God. Life is bad. Help me out, God. You know, maybe we're somewhere in this cycle. And we're, we're kind of like that little, that mouse of foxes chasing, right? We're just in this little cycle going round and round and round and round. And maybe we like to break out of that cycle because we're getting dizzy. Maybe God has something he'd like to say to us. So we'll pray open palms and, and trust his spirit to move. God, we humbly come into your presence, God, and we just ask for your help. God, no one is likely like you. No one can do what you can do. And God, for 330 years, your people, you know, just kind of messed up a lot. Uh, but yet you have truth to teach us. And God, give us hearts to hear your truth. God, may we be different. God, not because what I say is true, but because your word is truth, God, and your word is powerful and it changes things. God, God, help me to leave different. Help me to repent. Help me to dethrone any idol that's in my life. Help me to be humble enough to admit the issues I have so that you can restore me and renew me, remake me. In Jesus' name, amen. Relevant issue number one was the failure to pass on the torch of faith. Judges 2.7. The people served the Lord throughout the lifetime of Joshua and of the elders who outlived him and who had seen all the great things the Lord had done for Israel. And so far, so good, right? I mean, that's looking good. I mean, that's not a bad start, is it? I mean, mean, they're serving God. Everybody saw God, what he did, and even after Joshua died, they're still serving God. Looks good, at least on the surface. But just a few verses later, we read this. Actually, three verses later. After that, whole generation had been gathered to their ancestors. Another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. Question. Why didn't this new generation know the Lord? Why didn't they know about all the things that God had done for Israel? Because the dads, because the moms, because that generation who served the Lord failed to pass on the torch of faith to their kids. They failed to model, they failed to equip, they failed to teach the next generation about the extreme value and the importance of knowing and following the Lord. I mean, then what was the point? I mean, what really was the point? What really was gained for them, for the nation, for the world God intended for them to bless? What really was gained by them serving the Lord if they didn't pass it on to their kids? 
It makes no sense for us to busy ourselves in the Lord's work, to love the Lord, to serve the Lord, and to fail to bring our kids along for the experience. And that's exactly what God's people did during the period of Judges. And listen, this is a huge part. This is a huge part of the reason why things went bad so often for God's people in the period of Judges. After that whole generation been gathered to their ancestors, another generation grew up who knew neither the Lord nor what he had done for Israel. And the very next sentence, the very next words are this. Then the Lord did evil. Then Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord and served the Baals. There's a connection. Listen, passing on the torch of faith is an extremely relevant issue. Because Maple Grove, the truth is, Christianity is always just one generation away from extinction. Just one generation away. If one generation fails to pass it on, fails to model it, it's game over. And listen, it's always been that way for God's people. It's always been that way for following God. That's why when, when Moses talked to the people prior to entering the promised land, he said this in Deuteronomy chapter 6. He said, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, with all your strength. These commandments I give you today are to beware upon your hearts. He said, man, he said, moms and dads, this has got to be real. You got to love God with all your heart. Not just wear the t-shirt, it's got to be real. It's got to be real and it's got to be deep. It's got to be the real thing. And then he says this. See, after we do that, then we're ready to do this. Impress them on your children. Talk about them when you sit at home, when you walk along the road, when you lie down, when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. When people see what your hands do, let people know that those hands serve the Lord. Bind them on your foreheads. Let the thoughts of your mind show that you serve the Lord. Write them on the door frames of your house so your neighbors know that the Lord is number one there and on your gates so the community knows who you serve. And moms, dads, adults, God is counting on you. He's counting on me to, number one, to tell his story. And number two, he's counting on us to live out that story in our daily lives so they know the story continues and that there's chapters left to be written and that they're a part of it. God's counting on us to model and demonstrate to be an example of the real thing. A few weeks ago, we showed that Coke commercial from 1971. We said, what the world needs to see is the real thing. And they do, right? They need to see that we're real. We're the real deal. Well, guess who else needs to see the real thing? Moms and dads, adults, this generation. Our kids need to see the real thing in us. Understand, we have to make it beyond obvious that in our homes, beyond obvious, not just with empty words, that the Lord, his church, his mission, his gospel, his way, his truth, his glory is the most important thing there is to us. I mean, what good would it be for kids to gain the world? Uh, for, for, for children to be rich, to, to be famous, to, you know, to make what Judge Judy makes, to be educated, to, you know, to, to win a full ride at an Ivy League school, to be successful, to, to be the CEO of a Fortune 500 company. If they don't really know, love, and serve the Lord, what, what good would it be? And if you ever wanted to know why we put an emphasis on children's ministry and student ministry on here, this is why. This is why. And this is why we're going to put an even greater emphasis. This is why God has asked us, God has called us to do this. We want to see the next generation go farther than us. I want my kids. I want Chelsea. I want John. I want Leela. I want Gentile. I want May Lee. I want them to do more than me. I want them to go further than me with God. I want to do greater things than I could ever imagine. We want that for our young people. And if you ever wanted to know why Paul said this about those who would lead his church, in Titus 1.6, he says, an elder must live a blameless life. He must be faithful to his wife. And his children must be believers who don't have a reputation for being wild or rebellious. Now, my first three kids have done well, but, but you know what? If down the road, as May Lee and Gentile get in their teenage years, if they don't believe in God and they're wild and rebellious and live terrible, ungodly lives and everybody knows it, how effective will I be? 
Not effective at all. Not effective at all. Paul says, it's that important. It's that important. You know, and, and man, I put myself in line right now, don't I? You know, because the elders need to call me to the table if I got wild and early kids. Steve, we don't know if you should be leading us anymore. Because you're not setting the example. You know, I can't look at my three that are done, right? I, I got two more coming. It's that important. It's that important. Now, now if, you have a, if you have a kid at home, you know, in high school, or you're still supporting them in college, they're still kind of dependent on you, I, I want you to remain in your seats, Okay, anybody, you got a kid, you're still supporting, in your seats, everybody else stand up on your feet. And, and, and those standing, if you would kind of go around the room, you know, and, and, and kids, you're, hopefully you don't have any kids at home, right? You guys, you guys would stand too, okay? Everybody stands up unless you got a kid. How's that? All right, and then... Those of us standing, if you would make your way and just put your, you know, hey, parents, is it tough? Is it tough to pass on the faith? Right? It, it gets hard, right? And some of you may be struggling right now. And so put your hand, everybody, put your hand on a parent that's sitting down, and let's just join together and pray. Pray for them in this hard, difficult job. Okay. Hey, students, we need some help over here. Seriously. Students. Chaos is good. <laughs> Students, help us out. We got a lot of parents who need prayers. If you want your parent prayed for, and I know you do. <laughs> All, right. All right. All right. And the rest symbolically, there's a hand on you if you got one. Okay. Yeah, you may need it. All right. Okay, let's pray. Father God, we humbly come into your presence. God, we know you're great and you're powerful, God, and we know that it's so hard, God, to, to raise kids to love you and serve you and follow you in this corrupt, evil, pagan world, God. And right now, God, we just ask for every parent that's sitting, whether there's a hand on them or not, we know that your hand is on them. And God, we pray that you would renew them, that you would refresh them, that you would <coughs> help them to renew their commitment. God, to put you first and to help their kids know you, uh, that knowing you is the, will be the most important thing in that home, more important than, you know, recreation, God, more important than education, that knowing you and serving you is the most important thing. And God, help us to raise up a generation that is just totally sold out on you, God, that just reaches the world and spreads your glory fame and wide. And God, for those who are sitting who right now are really facing an uphill battle, God, just surround them with your presence, God. May your spirit stir within them, and may they be confident in you, not their ability, but God, that you're on their team, you're in their corner, and you want to help make a difference in the life of their students, God. May this be a church that changes the next generation for you, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 All right. All right. We should have practiced that, right? <laughs> the next relevant issue, we have to start rocking and rolling here, is the problem of compromise. And we saw last week that God told his people, you need to completely drive out the pagan godless culture, right? Get them out of there. And one of the reasons why was because God knew that the worship of the one true God would never take root, would never survive, would never be established if God's people were surrounded by a bunch of ungodly people. Well, guess what? They did not do that. Judges 121, the tribe of Benjamin, however, Failed to drive out the Jebusites. And if you read on in chapter 1, another tribe failed to drive out. Failed to drive out. Judges 3, 6. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, Hittites, Amorites, Perizzites, Hivites, Jebusites, and the Terminites. By the way, that judge was Orkin that was raised up. They took care of the Terminites. <laughs> and, and that was weak, I know. And, and they intermarried with them. Israelite sons married their daughters. With Israelite daughters were given in marriage to their sons, and the Israelites served their gods. They compromised. They became just like the world. They became just like the culture around them. The very next verse is what? The Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord. They compromised, and they did evil. 
Understand, the environment we place ourselves in matters. The environment we place ourselves in, it matters. If we hang out with the world, if we start doing things with the world, we're going to compromise. We're going to start embracing the values of the world. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verse 33, bad company creates good character. Is that what it says? Hang around bad people, you get better. No, it says you'll get worse. It corrupts it. Now, here's a scientific experiment you can try this week. Go out and make some mud. or maybe some mud in your home already. Buy you a pair of white gloves. Put that white glove on. Stick that white glove in the mud and ask yourself, did the mud get glovey or did my glove get muddy? Okay, and, and bring your results next week. We'll have a report time. <laughs> you, you see, we're gonna, if we hang out in the world, we're going to get like the world. Okay, doesn't mean we don't engage the world and change the world, but if our best relationships are with ungodly people, it's going to, ask Samson, right? Right? Yeah, he got got muddy, didn't he? And he compromised and he suffered for it. Next is the problem of the cost of doing our own thing. The entire book of Judges is summarized this way. In those days, Israel had no king. All the people did whatever seemed right in their own eyes. They had no king, no standard. Everyone did whatever they wanted. Everyone did their own thing. If it felt good, they did it. The cost, 111 years of oppression and captivity. And it didn't have to be that way. I mean, doesn't that pretty much sum up our culture? A culture where right and wrong is simply now a matter of personal preference? And does this attitude, doing our own thing, does it ever like invade the church? Yeah, it does. I know God says I I should be sexually moral. I I know God God, God says that that I should give back to him my 10%. I know God says I shouldn't really gossip or slander, but I really love that Frank Sinatra song, and I'm going to do it my way. Maple Grove newsflash. We have a king, and it's not me, and it's not you. It's God. And there's always a cost to doing our own thing. Get it? Good. Okay, three quick God reveals. Purpose of Scripture, one of them is to reveal things about God. And here's one thing we, we, is revealed about God in, in the book of Judges is that God hates sin and disobedience. Now, does that statement surprise anybody in this room? Probably not, right? I mean, we know that, we get that. But, but here's a question that I have to ask myself. Why is this knowledge that God hates sin more motivating to me? I mean, why doesn't God's hatred of sin and the punishment I will receive move me to sin less and obey more? Why? I think part of the reason, at least for me, is because many times in the New Testament era, the punishment is delayed and not as obvious. Anybody know what this thing is right here? This picture about to pop up? Boom, 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 boom. I skipped some scripture. Anybody know what that is? That's a red light camera. Anybody ever meet one? I'd have twice. <laughs> the last time, northbound, Highway 29, Rio Road. I'm running late. Traffic is clear. It's red. I hit the gas pedal. Boom. Know what? I know I did it. I know it was wrong. Looked in my rearview mirror, didn't see any lights, and then I'm just pretty okay with it. I mean, I never thought about it again until I got a ticket in the mail. $120 ticket. And they even have a website, check this out, where you can watch your sin in real time. It's a video. And so I logged, I watched like four times. I, I should have saved it to use for an illustration. And it, it's like, it wasn't even close, man. I mean, I mean, it was like, I could count like the 15 seconds. It's, it's pitiful. It's pitiful. The bottom line is this. Even though we may not have yet received a ticket in the mail, we can be certain that God still hates our sin and our disobedience. John said in John 1, 1 John 1, 6, if we claim to have fellowship with him, yet walk in darkness, we lie and do not live by the truth. The next big reveal about God, his unlimited patience. 
Man, I don't know about you. When I read chapter 8 of the story, and when I read the Bible, I'm, I'm blown away by God's patience. I, I mean, if I were God, I, his people would not have made it out of Genesis. You know, they're done. There'd be one book of the Bible, one chapter. It's over. I'm done with you. And, and when they started whining out of e- a month out of Egypt, like I did those miracles part to see, I'm bringing you manna, and you're whining. Boom, you're gone. You're done. Out of here. In chapter of the story, uh, we most definitely see in LD, 3D, high definition, the unlimited patience of our God on display. And, and did God's unlimited patience end in the Old Testament? Praise God, it didn't. Read what a murderer wrote in 1 Timothy. Here's a trustworthy saying that deserves full acceptance. Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the worst. But for that very reason, I will show mercy so that in me, the worst of sinners, Christ might display in high definition his unlimited patience as an example for those who would believe in him and receive eternal life. Amen, Paul. And then, and, and then, and then I don't think Paul intended to write this, but when Paul thought about God's unlimited patience, and when I look at my life and I think about how he's patient with me, no matter how stupid I get, I, I want to say the same thing. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory. Amen. Amen. There's no one patient like our God. Anybody thankful that our God is patient? In 2 Peter 3, 9, he says that God is patient. Not wanting anybody to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. The next, the next thing revealed about God is what God can do with faith. Like I said, the period of Judges is not characterized by faith, but there is some faith. And, and sometimes that faith was kind of small, but remember Jesus said, if you have faith even as a what? A mustard seed. You can say to a mountain, hey, get out of here, and the mountain's gone. I love it. I love it. That's what faith can do. And a powerful, a powerful example of, of what faith can do, even mustard seed-sized faith can do in the life of somebody, is in a guy named Gideon. Uh, when God looked at Gideon, he was hiding in a wine press from his enemies. And, and, he, and he was wearing a label that said, I can't, I'm weak, I'm afraid, I'm the least. He says, that's who I am, that's my name, that's my label, that's what they gave me, that's what I believe. And then Almighty God looked at him and said, you know what, I see something else. I, I see a mustard seed size, size faith, and you know what, I, that's not who you are. He says, you know what, I'm going to give you a new label. You know who I see when I look at you? I see a mighty warrior. That's who you are. That's your name. That's the label I want to put on you. And he won the most amazing victory. You got to read if you haven't read it already. Incredible. What God can do with faith. We, it, it doesn't take a lot. It only takes a little. Mustard seed can do a great thing. And right now, I, I want to tell you that right now, God sees past the label you're wearing. All the things the world has put on you and that you put on yourself, what you can't do, who you can't be, what you're not going to overcome. And God says, uh-uh, I, I see some faith welling up in you, and you're going to rise up and be the man that God has always called you to be. And the final reveal, move that bus. I love this one. How he responds to repentance. When they cried out to the Lord, he raised up for them a deliverer. Question, how, how, how does God respond to repentance with deliverance, forgiveness, and restoration every single time? How does he respond? Every time, every time he responds with deliverance, forgiveness, and restoration every single time. And let me tell you, God's people in the book of Judges, they really pushed that 70 times 70 envelope, didn't they? But every time they repented, God delivered, God forgave, and God restored. One day, a murderer and an adulterer was caught in a bad cycle. 
made some bad choices and he's feeling the weight of those choices and he doesn't know what to do. The distance between him and God is so far, he's afraid, God, 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 you're going to, God, don't leave me. Don't take your presence from me, God. I don't know what to do, God. My life's a mess. I made bad choices. I don't like where I'm at. I don't like the pain that I'm feeling, the hurt that I'm feeling. And then he wrote these words 3,000 years ago. You do not desire a sacrifice or I would offer one. You do not want to burn offering. The sacrifice you desire is a broken spirit. You will not reject a broken and repentant heart, oh God. He says, this is all I got to do. God, 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 I can't make it up. I can't restore myself, but I can repent. And he repented, and God restored David. This is who our God is. This is who he is. And check this out. Oh, oh, oh man, this is our lower story rebellion against God is always met with his, with his upper story invitation to return to him. Don't you love it? Anytime we rebel, every time we walk away, maybe that's where you are today. You know it. But every time we turn away from God, every time we rebel, our lower story rebellion is always met by God saying, come back, come back. That's what Revelation 3.20 is about. Talking to the church. I, I stand at the door. And, and right now, right now, he's at the door. Some hearts in this room. Hearts of people who are far from God and not living right. He says, I'm knocking. I'm not going to barge in. It's not how I roll, but I'm going to knock. I'm going to knock this sucker toe where my knuckles out. He's going to keep knocking. He says, anybody opens that door, we're gonna, I'm going to come in. We got a meal together. We're going to have a relationship together. Chapter 8 of the story, it's huge. I love it. I love it. Relevant issues, passing the torch of faith, danger of compromise, the cost of doing our own thing. God reveals he hates sin and disobedience. His patience is unlimited. What he can do with faith and how he responds to repentance. And another thing, another thing that, that really hit me is... This chapter has motivated me to break out of my own cycle. See, we have, a, we have a cycle too. It's the same cycle, right? It's a cycle of sin, a cycle of oppression. You know, and our problem's the same, right? It's the same thing. And you know, God has set us up for success in this new life, hadn't he? God has forgiven me. God has delivered me. God has cleansed me. God has put his spirit inside of me. God has given me his word to guide me. God has given me promises to, uh, to motivate and give me endurance. God has give, promised me he's coming back for me. God has promised me that if I abide in him, I'm going to produce much fruit. And, and I've made a very bold commitment. I have said that I am... I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live. I mean, totally set up for success. But, but yet, at times, I, I still struggle up here. Maybe you do. And I'm not talking about a one-time sin, but maybe, maybe you got to just be, maybe be honest with yourself. And say, I'm, I'm caught in a cycle right now. You know what? I, I'm chasing the wrong things in life. I, I, I have jacked up, messed up priorities. Man, there's an addiction that has a hold of me that I just can't let go of. I keep mistreating the people that I love. And man, I am just feeling the weight of that. I don't have peace. I put a fake smile on, but I don't have peace. The joy is slipping away. I'm afraid God's going to leave me. Life just seems to be crashing and burning. And maybe that's where you are. Well, God is looking for Repentance. Or even be honest with God, you know what? I'm not living right, and I'm just not ready to repent right now. I mean, I think God doesn't like it. He can at least deal with that. But if we say, God, you know what? I want something better, and you have something better for me. God, I'm turning back to you. You know what happens? He forgives. He restores. He renews. He refreshes. Because that is who he is. That's the God that we serve. You know, we're, we're, we're going we're gonna to sing the song, and, and, and I'll be getting jacked up. I've got to be honest with you. Reading Ezekiel and, and uh, reading God's at War, 
and doing the story. You know, God is just saying, Steve, you know what? There's things that, that, that you're bringing other gods into my presence. That, 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 that I'm committing idolatry. You know, and I don't know where you are in your journey. You know, and God knows. And, and we serve a God who restores. And the song we sang in the beginning, it's about, you know, lay me down. You know, and, and uh, I'm going to pray. And then we're, we're going to sing the song, you know. And, and make this an, this an opportunity. It really is. You know, if you're a Christ follower, you've been set up. The deck is stacked for your success, for your joy, for your peace beyond understanding, you know. And, and if, you're, if you're messed up and peace is gone, it doesn't have to be that way. It doesn't have to be that way. And repentance is a way home. Uh, repentance is a beautiful thing. It's a gift from God to turn back to him. And, and I'm going to pray, and, and then we'll stand. God, God, we, God, we love you. And God, thank you for being patient with me. So many times. Thank you for pouring your grace on me. Thank you that every time I do stupid things and I turn back to you, you accept me and forgive me and renew me and believe in me. Thank you that, you know, when all hope is lost, you never have given up on me. And God, I, God, I, I know in my life, Lord, I, I know there's things I put before you. And, and, and I just want you to be it, God. And God, I want to fire and dethrone all these false gods that offer me nothing. And God, as we sing this song, God, I, I want it to be more than just words. I, I want to lay down everything and follow you because you're worth everything, God. And God, I just pray that you move in your people, your spirit convicts, and that we're different, God. And thank you that the door to come home is our door, and we get to open it now if we want to. Amen. Let's stand.